Dear listener, let me set the scene for you. It's July of 2021, in the midst of a global pandemic. And here in British Columbia, we've just experienced the highest recorded temperatures of our known history. Lytton, B.C. hit 49.6 degrees Celsius, or 121 Fahrenheit, and then promptly caught fire, causing more than 1,000 people to evacuate their homes with at least two dead from fire-related causes. The immediate trigger is a heat dome, a meteorological phenomenon in which hot air is trapped by high-pressure vents and pushed back to the ground where it heats up even more. The condition also inhibits cloud formation, allowing even more radiation from the sun to hit the ground. The underlying cause is now reliably attributed to climate change, a problem accelerated by human activities and one that can be altered by policy changes. But today, we're going to talk about a different human folly that goes back to the early 1900s in Canada. Welcome to SeedPod, the podcast that shines a spotlight on Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows, illuminating their people, places, and institutions. Five SeedPod hosts share their diverse perspectives on issues and events in the community, introducing you to a range of interesting guests. We gratefully acknowledge that we're broadcasting to you from the unceded traditional territories of the Kwantlen First Nation and the Katsi First Nation. My name's Christian Cowley. I'm joined today by co-host Jack Amberley. Let's start now in the segment we're calling Government Skullduggery at Coquitlam Lake. In April 1994, researcher Will Coop presented a report to the Port Moody Ecological Society on the history of the Coquitlam watershed and river. Jack, the Coop report sheds a lot of light on what we cover in our series about the Hundred-Year War on Alouette Salmon. It's crucial to our understanding of how thousands of salmon in the Alouette watershed and other watersheds in BC Hydro's bridge coastal region of lower mainland Vancouver and lower interior were sacrificed for hydroelectric power. Despite their importance to First Nations, commercial and recreational fishermen, and the general public. The Alouette Dam and Tunnel were completed way back in the 1920s, but there was another dam and tunnel built on the Coquitlam River about two decades earlier. Will Coop's report reveals how that project proceeded despite concerns expressed for salmon runs and the people that relied on them. And it shows that the tactics used at the Coquitlam watershed set a precedent for the Alouette. Christian, Coop researches the impact of a 1903 dam on abundant resident salmon in the Coquitlam River. In 1994, he presented his findings to the Ecological Society of Port Moody. And in 2001, he releases another paper entitled Red Fish Up the River, made for the Quitwetlam First Nation, who take their name from the Lake Sockeye. The Quitwetlam Nation, like the Katsi and Kwantlen of the Alouette watershed, had relied on salmon for thousands of years, until dams and water diversion tunnels destroyed their runs. So let's look into the Coquitlam story. It begins in the 1890s with a novel plan to generate hydroelectric power by the London-based B.C. Electric Railway Company, and its subsidiary, the Vancouver Power Company, the predecessor of B.C. Hydro. At the turn of the 19th century, Vancouver's electrical demands were furnished by a steam power plant. B.C. Electric Railway saw an opportunity to make a lot of money with the new, quote-unquote, miraculous alternative, water power. 
Coop says, quote, stock markets were already skyrocketing as corporations poured investor-financed capital for ambitious hydroelectric projects in North America. The BC Electric Railway Company tweaked BC with talk of quote-unquote white coal. White coal? What were they referring to? Snow. Here's Coop quoting BC Electric Power. The eternal snow on the mountains up the north arm of Burrard Inlet is the white coal, which is your Coquitlam and your Bunsen Lakes, connected by the longest water power tunnel in the world and thus harnessed by the BC Electric Railway Company brought down here in light, heat, and power, unquote. Vancouver Power Company thusly proposed to build a dam on Coquitlam Lake to collect and send water down a two-and-a-half-mile tunnel from Coquitlam Lake to power-generating stations on Bunsen Lake on Indian Arm. Firstly, though, they needed to gain control of the water, which was in government hands. The federal government was responsible for salmon to First Nations, loggers and communities like New Westminster, which also used it for drinking. So there's opposition to raising the lake for hydroelectric power, even though there's a promise of cheaper heat and light? Yes. Dams, as we've seen in our story of the Alouette, had dire consequences for fish and the lives of people who relied on the watershed in its natural state. So Vancouver Power expected challenges but it was confident from the beginning. Coop's report says it had an intricate, multi-layered strategy to overcome all resistance. It would systematically win the support of government leaders and key ministries, including the Department of Fisheries and Marine, the granddaddy of the current Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Coop's findings are definitely significant to the Hundred-Year War on Alouette Salmon. Coop calls them a precedent to the Alouette Tunnel and Dam story. In 1994, because of that connection, Will Coop contacts Jeff Clayton. I asked Jeff how that happened. In 1995, after being heavily involved uh, with the Alouette and trying to get more water out of BC Hydro for the river flows, I guess it it became uh, somewhat public. And then one day I got a phone call from a chap introducing himself as Will Coop, a name I had not heard before. He said he was had been uh, researching uh, heavily on the Coquitlam, had traveled to Ottawa in the summer, had researched documentation back there on the early water licensing on the Coquitlam, and uh, he had found a trail there uh, that he felt uh, I would be interested in uh, because he said The Alouette would never have been approved if it hadn't been for the forerunner of the Coquitlam licensing process. He then unfolded to to some degree of what that was. He said that when they initially put the tunnel through the mountain, uh, diverting the Coquitlam Lake into Lake Bunsen and, and therefore through the power turbines into Indian Arm, he said it was illegal. He said, amazingly enough, he said they felt at some point they could get forgiveness and they they went ahead with this major project, which has the engineering 
uh, groups and others around the world had paid notice to it. It may have been uh, the first and foremost uh, tunnel of its kind. And he said, but by 1914, they were about to raise the dam on the Coquitlam to get a higher head pressure through the tunnel. And at that point, it was very uh, apparent that they should get security of a licensing uh, for the tunnel and the diversion. This took some time to get through. And with an, um, a considerable amount of skullduggery, with manipulating the deputy minister in Ottawa, um, the, the minister himself, the cabinet minister himself, was upset. They were able to convince him that it was in the best interests of the federal and provincial governments to see this made legal. And um, after about six months, uh, it was passed in the House of Commons. And therefore, he said, when the Alouette came up in a public hearing in 1923, the BC Electric Railway Company, stockholders in Great Britain, who had bought the water rights in 1918, they, they, they saw this as just an ideal opportunity to do exactly the same thing. And that was to put a tunnel through the base of Mount uh, Crickmere um, and divert the Alouette into the stave. It was a ripe plum for picking because they already had two turbines, one on State Falls and the other below it on Ruskin. And this diversion uh, would give them the opportunity to put another station called the Elowet Station on the outflow from the tunnel into the Stave Reservoir and then through Stave and Ruskin. So it, it was, um, it was uh, from an engineering point of view, it, it was um, an amazingly profitable project to uh, get underway. And now it was going to be legal. And so Will said, the reason I gave you a call is I thought you would like to know this history and why the Alouette was a piece of cake, whereas the Coquitlam had actually been against the law. And I, I thanked him. I said, it's an amazing piece of history. I'd like to keep in contact with you uh, over a period of time and did so. Jeff forwarded me both of Coop's documents. Let's su subtitle part one of the Coquitlam story. Objective one, getting control of Coquitlam Lake water for power generation. Since 1886, the Coquitlam Water Works Company owned the rights to potable water from the mouth of Coquitlam Lake. No rights had been issued to water for power generation. In 1902, Vancouver Power bought the Coquitlam Water Works Charter. They said they'd only siphon off, quote, a small portion of the available water flow, unquote, and promised New Westminster better water pressure, a steadier supply, and cheaper electricity. All they asked for was a small, five-foot-high dam. Coop says this offer removed political opposition to Vancouver Power's application to the provincial government for its power project. So, in 1902, through an order in council, Vancouver Power was granted a water license for 5,000 miners inches, or about 125 cubic feet per second. This was only about one-seventh of the flow during high water. About 90% of the Coquitlam watershed runoff came into the upper two-thirds of the lake. That same year, Vancouver Power Company started building its water diversion tunnel, even though Dominion law at the time stated that water diverted from a river 
had to return to its original source. Coop notes loggers wanted to shoot logs through the tunnel. But the Vancouver Power and City of New Westminster opposed that idea. They worried that logs could get stuck inside and plug up the tunnel, and logging could reduce their water supply. That stopped logging in the watershed, which is perhaps the best part of this story. It's interesting to note that the Vancouver Power superintendent argued that the city of New Westminster could use its riparian rights for its water supply to get the government to place a reserve on the timber in the watershed. The tunnel construction work was dangerous. Coop writes, quote, There were a number of related accidents and fatalities. Even though the men wanted to take time off to mourn the dead and attend funerals, the company foreman frequently insisted they keep right on working, unquote. Jack, that's a grim scene you paint. How did the government react to this sort of thing? We don't know. But according to Coop, the tunnel completion celebration was attended by members of government, cabinet ministers, and local mayors. And as cheers went up, Vancouver Power christened Trout Lake, Bunsen Lake, after a director of the Vancouver Power Company. But there are official concerns about the dam. The Federal Department of Fisheries and Marine, Officer C.B. Sward, worries about, quote, thousands and thousands of salmon that are supposed to migrate into Coquitlam Lake. But a five-foot dam isn't considered a threat to spawning channels and tributaries as long as the company builds a fish ladder. Vancouver Power agrees to build one, and the Department of Fisheries and Marine approves its plan. But, says Coop, quote, the Department of Fisheries may have neglected to monitor the effectiveness of the ladder since its completion in 1905, unquote. Because a commercial canners association member points out fish aren't able to ascend it. Sward asked Vancouver Power for alterations to help the salmon. Improvements on the ladder are undertaken, but it still doesn't work. 1906 rolls around. There's a new problem now. This low-level dam is leaking. By 1908, it's leaking really badly. Jack, I'm reminded again of the Alouette Dam and Jeff Clayton's concerns that seepage at the base, or piping, suggested it might be leaking. Who discovered the leak on the Coquitlam Dam? Members of the public. And at the same time, the Commercial Canners Association worries that the dam will negatively impact the commercial salmon industry. Leaking dams are also a serious concern. How was that issue addressed? In 1906, says Coob, Coquitlam Council threatened legal action if the dam were to break and jeopardize the lives and property. So Vancouver Power fixed it. But in 1908, as I said, it was leaking again, only more so. This time, Vancouver Power assures everyone the leaking issue could be corrected with a new, higher dam. Coop says Vancouver Power had plans to raise the height of the dam from 5 to 100 feet anyhow. More water, more power, a larger reservoir would triple the flow through the tunnel to Bunsen. Coop says this plan delighted investors in London. Again, there's opposition. Coquitlam Council lawyers warn Vancouver Power of legal action if they raise the dam. And loggers oppose it, saying the change would hamper their ability to float logs down the Coquitlam River. Vancouver Power subsequently applies to Victoria for a certificate of approval anyway. That prompts a petition 
opposing the plan to raise the dam. It's sent from Coquitlam Council to the Lieutenant Governor in Victoria. It states, quote, A grant cannot be made because it would affect the vested rights of riparian owners and interfere with navigation and fisheries, unquote. Furthermore, quote, It would dry up the river as the only reservation for the use of the public. In 1909, the Federal Department of Justice echoes these concerns. It had now discovered that when Vancouver Power diverted water through its tunnel, it was contravening the federal legislation that stated water taken from a river must return to that river. But Vancouver Power's parent company, BC Electric Railway, had more than one arrow in its quiver. Coop writes that BC Electric Railway had, quote, influential friends in Victoria and Ottawa. It secretly donated financial contributions to political parties, unquote. It also, writes Coop, got prominent local businessmen to back its proposal and put pressure on the mayor of New Westminster to make a reasonable stand, unquote. Coop says BC Electric Railway also enlisted retired MP Andrew Thompson to help with Vancouver Power's goal of raising the dam. In 1909, Vancouver Power Director Sperling wrote to Thompson saying, The Dominion government has taken a hand in the game now and must be gotten rid of. And the company invokes your assistance for this purpose and expects you to leave no stone unturned to accomplish this, unquote. Coop says BC Electric wanted Oliver, the Minister of Interior, Frank Oliver, to amend legislation in Parliament so it wouldn't have difficulty in the future. Coop says the alteration will set a precedent, allowing the diversion of water on other watersheds, including the Alouette. So in order to protect their interests, BC Electric Railway got the legislation altered and, quote, secretly donated to political parties, unquote. Coop writes, It is important to note that had this earlier legislation stood the test of time, it would also have prevented BC Electric Railway's Bridge River Power Project in the 1920s, which diverts water to Seton Lake, and the Alcan Project on the Nechaco River from ever occurring. Unquote. It would also have thrown a monkey wrench into the Alouette Tunnel and dam. Was Thompson able to accomplish this? Yes. Thompson got Oliver to reinterpret the original orders in council for water flow rights to mean that Vancouver Power was entitled to use, quote, all the water from Coquitlam Lake and there would be none to spill down their spillway, unquote. Coop says he also got Oliver to cancel the 1901 order in council, which protected forests around Coquitlam Lake for New Westminster City's water supply. And in 1902, Vancouver Power got its first water license of 5,000 miners inches. Coop says, quote, This enables Vancouver Power to later apply for land rights on the lake and is privately eager to get approval for more. Vancouver Power was still worried about resistance from local municipalities. Director Bunsen writes in March 1902, quote, 
Any such move would be sure to meet with much determined resistance on the part of New Westminster and other municipalities, as it would mean that if ever they wished to take more water from the lake, we could prevent them from doing so or claim compensation, unquote. And on April 30, 1903, Bunsen requested and obtained Victoria's approval for 10,000 miners' inches, allowing Vancouver Power to use the water so long as the city of New Westminster does not need it. Coop says the battle over jurisdiction over water took a fundamental turn in 1909. That year, quote, a federal court case over Lillooet Lake, later renamed Alouette Lake, concluded that the federal government retained jurisdiction. It meant the federal government now had rights over the Coquitlam Lake area. Andrew Thompson, the retired member of parliament, writes Vancouver Power to say that he has got the Deputy Minister of Justice, quote, an old and trusted official, to withdraw the very unfounded plea that our case has anything to do with the conflict of jurisdiction regarding certain B.C. waters being tried in the courts. This is a big step in advance, unquote. Coop recounts that during the skirmish between Coquitlam, New Westminster City, and Vancouver Power, the federal government canceled the provincial government's water licenses and granted almost the entire water supply to Vancouver Power. A local Vancouver Power manager then reported, quote, With reference to the water rights, the minister stated in the erection of the dam, he believed we would be rightfully entitled to all of the water stored, and he would be inclined to give us a grant of the whole reserving only the water which would be withdrawn through the pipe of the Westminster water system. This grant, he said, would be made under the provisions of the Dominion Water Power Act and would continue in force for 84 years, In essence, concludes Coop, the federal government being constantly lobbied by Vancouver Power usurped New Westminster City's future rights granted by the B.C. government and redrafted legislation giving Vancouver Power rights to the water within the new reservoir and almost the entire Coquitlam runoff. As predicted, says Coop, this decision launched a Supreme Court action by New Westminster City in 1910. During these proceedings, says Coop, the Minister of the Interior actually provided confidential government documents to Vancouver Power. Thompson's instructions were... Make all the use you like of this material therein contained, but do not let them out of your possession, and do not quote them or refer to them in framing your defense. So that's a big part of the resistance overcome. The power companies have control of the water, but now they would presumably have to deal with the Federal Ministry of Fisheries and Marine. That's objective number two. Coop says fisheries was actually more difficult to deal with. He writes, Vancouver Power had secretly planned to shut off the entire flow at the Coquitlam Dam. The company realized a long fish ladder would mean they'd lose out on an extra supply of water for their dam and tunnel. To deal with that, they developed a PR, public relations campaign, for the three levels of government. Coop says Oliver then sent a memo to the B.C. lieutenant governor 
It reads, Salmon in the past ascended this river in large numbers to spawn in the lake, but afterward die, and prove detrimental to the waters as a source of domestic supply. The undersigned is of the opinion no provision for the passage of fish is necessary in the new works, and that such provision may be dispensed with, subject to the approval of the proper officers of the Marine and Fisheries Department. It seems the federal government is swayed by Vancouver Power's PR efforts. Does this completely dissuade the Department of Fisheries and Marine? Initially, no. They stay the course, as per their mandate to protect fish and habitat. Coop says fisheries had told superiors in Ottawa, i.e. the deputy minister, that building a 100-foot dam would destroy the run of salmon to the lake. To counter that objection, Thompson suggests the company, quote, make it appear the company's project would be much more beneficial than would the loss to the fisheries be detrimental, in which case consent would probably be given, unquote. Coop makes another important observation here that has relevance today in the 100 years war on Alouette salmon. He says, The problem fisheries officers faced, and still face today, was that despite his concerns, someone back in Ottawa had the power to reinterpret his recommendations. Thompson had been ordered by BC Electric Railway, says Coop, to now watch for any troublesome report from fisheries, because, quote, the attitude of the fishery board is now the only thing that is causing us any anxiety, unquote. Thompson subsequently meets with the Minister of Fisheries and goes back to BC Electric Railway with some very good news. He has learned something important from the Deputy Minister of Fisheries and reports to BC Electric Railway that, quote, the officer on the case did not recommend the granting of our application. Still, he did not take very strenuous ground against it. He certainly gave me the impression that we need expect no serious opposition from him, unquote. Coop says three days later, Thompson got further company directions to continue with, quote, stern follow-up measures with ministries of fishery brodeur, pointing out, it cannot be shown that the Coquitlam River is now or ever was of any special value to the fisheries in B.C. And, as a matter of fact, such salmon as did enter the lake at one time have since been excluded by the erection of the dam built in 1904. Further, to permit the salmon, which are largely of an inferior species to enter the lake, would mean serious injury to the New West water supply. Do we know if any of that was true? Before 1900, when there were thousands of salmon in the lake, Coquitlam had been using the water for drinking. Of course, everyone knows the fish were not of inferior quality. So, two untruths. That it would damage the water, and authorities and researchers today say no, it would not. But after meeting with fisheries minister Brodeur, Thompson messages the company to say, we would be expecting no further interference from his department, unquote. After that, obstacle three remained, the existing legislation against the diversion of water. That sounds like a big obstacle for the uh, company. How did they deal with it? Firstly, says Koo, the London secretary of the company writes a letter marked, quote, private, 
acknowledging that diverted water from Coquitlam Lake to Bunsen has presumably been illegal and so far only condoned. The secretary then suggests Oliver should be pressed to pass amending legislation in Parliament, as it will make your property rights secure in the future when a new minister or a new government will arise. Coop says, so in order to protect their interests, BC Electric Railway Company, Vancouver Power, got legislation altered. Coop says, it is important to note that had this legislation stood the test of time, it would have prevented BC Electric Railway Bridge Power Project in the 1920s, which diverts water to Seton Lake, and the controversial Alkine Project of the, ne- the Chaco from ever occurring. In conclusion, says Coop, almost all the water rights from the Coquitlam watershed had been questionably transferred to a vested interest group and away from the public's use for hydroelectric power. What we now know is that one of the consequences has been the devastation of salmon runs, not only in Coquitlam Lake, but in the Alouette watershed and others. Consequences that would be mitigated with political will and an honest reset in attitude and policy by BCH. We could start with an end to entrainment in Alouette Lake and a fish ladder. To paraphrase Jeff Clayton, BC Hydro has made a lot of money from the river at the expense of salmon through the thinking of a pioneer era. But you don't have any excuses now, and we want our river back. My first impression is that this story should make me feel a lot of outrage and betrayal. But what it really tells me is the systemic malaise that infects our daily reality now. It's been a long time in the making and will continue to be so well into the future unless we demand better. This fish and power story is the same story as the pipeline and climate change story. It's the same story as the fracking story, as the genocide story of First Nations, and as the systemic discrimination against successive peoples. It's our decision makers with fiduciary duty, which is fancy speak for being responsible for a people's well-being, not living up to their responsibilities. Decision makers that neglect the greater good in favor of some special interest, usually a commercial interest. So as a people, how do we go about improving the situation? For me, it means that we have to be vigilant. We have to call out the issues as we see them. And we have to tell the decision makers what we want to see done and insist upon it. We won't always win, but we will have fulfilled our part of the social contract that is a country we call Canada. As Margaret E. Wheatley said in her article, Beyond Hopelessness, we should carry on activism not because we expect to have an impact, but because we believe it to be right. And sometimes it does bear fruit. What's your takeaway from this, Jack? We began our story of the Hundred Years' War on Alouette Salmon by saying, follow the money. That path leads to answers to questions such as, why did private citizens and community interest groups and organizations have to battle private industry and our own government to the point of threatening legal action to win protections for fish and habitat and basic human rights? It sheds light on the historical abuse of First Nations by Canada's governments, which meet four out of five criteria for genocide, as defined by the United Nations Office on Genocide Prevention and the Responsibility to Protect. 
First Nations, as far back as the 1890s, were not seen as rightful occupants of the land around rivers and lakes, but as obstacles to be removed for development. In essence, their culture, diet, and spiritual life were all erased when the dams went in, and the destructive effects of that skullduggery on First Nations lives goes on today. The general public is just coming to understand the full extent of this deceitful behavior with the revelation of the unmarked graves of children imprisoned in residential schools. The lives of little First Nations kids did not matter to these decision makers, period. The public is waking to these facts and will no longer tolerate this. We bring this to your attention in this podcast to stand by our First Nations people with additional truths about how they have been perceived and mistreated. In advocating for salmon and habitat, we are also moving a small step closer to the actual building blocks of any real reconciliation process with First Nations. Coop's report also shows us how a company focused on profit to the exclusion of human rights and dignity and the fate of salmon, was able to overcome all resistance to a dam and water diversion tunnel to the point of altering protective legislation in place that would have prevented this. And it shows how the company's success, aided by government officials, paved the way for additional dam and tunnel projects, including the Alouette Dam and Water Diversion Tunnel. Finally, there was no real protection of our urban wild salmon in 1900, but mistakes made then have not been corrected by private industry or government, even as salmon everywhere in B.C. are on the brink of extinction. As Clayton says to anyone at B.C.H. who will listen, quote, those were decisions made a pioneer era when people didn't know better, but today you have no excuse. That statement applies just as well to our BC government, our current federal minister of fisheries, the DFO, and the Ministry of Environment. In 2011, during testimony on the disappearance of Fraser River sockeye salmon at the Cohen Inquiry, a retired deputy minister of fisheries made a surprising comment, which I wrote down. He was shedding light on a decision by the DFO not to mitigate damage to a unique run of sockeye in Cultus Lake. The fish were losing their spawning grounds to unchecked urbanized development. The spawning area might have been remediated, but DFO would not commit funds to that. That official testifying before Justice Cohen said, we have to discuss who makes these decisions, unquote. That was the same question yeomen, citizens of England, who were tired of being treated like serfs by their monarch, finally asked themselves in 1215. In 1215, they forced King John to sign the Magna Carta, a document that gave them riparian rights on their own lands. Ironically, over 800 years later, Jeff Clayton would tell us that riparian rights, still available in English common law, 
the origin of our current laws, could have been used by a lawyer representing arms in its battle to get BC Hydro to release more water over Alouette Dam. Subsequently, BC Hydro would say it would voluntarily release more water over the dam. I think the fact that individual Canadians and First Nations today have had to fight so hard to restore their rights and access to their rivers and lakes tells us we have gone a long way from the principles of representative government. These are the principles so famously carved out during the American War of Independence. Instead, we have moved back to those marked for ownership by monarchies that governed up till then. American Thomas Paine pointed out the underlying differences. He said representative governments use power for the common benefit of a universal or inclusive society and a system of peace to enrich a nation. In contrast, a monarchy encourages national prejudices and supports itself by keeping up a system of war. In a monarchy, says Paine, power was inherited. The son or daughter of a king would assume control when the ruler died and hold power until death, even if he or she was mentally incapable of decision-making. Society and the life of individuals can be a lot better when people elect their representatives, but the benefits are never guaranteed and they are fragile. They will be diminished without what Aldous Huxley, the novelist, refers to as eternal vigilance of government, vigilance of government and its decisions. Paine said, how often is the natural propensity of society disturbed or destroyed by the operation of government? It is often the cause of mischief when it ought to prevent it. Government far from being the cause or means of order, are often the destruction of it. In the Coop Report, we have examples of that truth as government taking the side of private industry, often resembling a monarch, altered protective legislation for fish and habitat, and subsequently destroyed ways of life for citizens and destroyed First Nations culture and livelihood, identity, and commerce solely for the benefit of private power companies. In a time when BC Hydro's water license is up for renewal, the fundamental question regarding what happens to fish, habitat, and people in society going forward after a pandemic should be who makes these decisions? And the answer should be the people. DFO, the Minister of Environment, and elected officials at all levels of government should be committing openly to this foundation of North American society. Finally, a quote from Thomas Paine in 1776, the author of a political pamphlet entitled Common Sense, said, The cause of America is the cause of all mankind. Unquote. And now let's hear Jeff's takeaway of the Coop Report. 
the government of today wanted to prove it had a different mindset from the government of 1900. Their latest announcement by Bernadette Jordan and, and, and Wilkinson would have included an announcement of a West Coast Department of Fisheries and a new First Nations Department head working with this group. The practice of promoting private industry over public uh, interests has been a conflict that has happened from the get-go. DFO should have been there to protect the salmon in 1900, not private income. And we have this today with the net pen industry, which the DFO um, have been promoting with, with a huge conflict of interest. On the Coquitlam Tunnel, uh, it was illegal when it was built, but government found a way then to alter the protective legislation that was as close to a criminal act as you could get by government. And, and to this day, government has never admitted the diversion of these watersheds was wrong and continues to do great harm, and there are ways to address it now. But the issue is still not before BC Hydro's board of directors or intergovernment agencies, the BC Utility Commission, which would have to review this, um, has never got that package to look at it. Nobody is dealing with this issue. I always believed that we could find the evidence. We would show the mistakes they have to change, and I guess that makes me an internal optimist because, um, you know, here I am, maybe like a fool, still trying to convince people that have the power to make this change that it's their moral obligation to do so. And it's as simple as that. So what you've heard in this episode from our guest Jeff Clayton and my co-host Jack Amberley and I is how special interests have manipulated our governance systems for private benefit at great cost to society. The next step, my friends, is up to you and I. We have to demand better. This concludes the episode we've called Government Skullduggery at Coquitlam Lake. SeedPod is brought to you by the Seed Centre Society in Maple Ridge, British Columbia. We operate a neighbourhood house in a heritage building originally built by the area's Japanese-Canadian pioneers as a kindergarten in the 1920s, about the time much of the skullduggery we have outlined took place. In a future podcast, we will cover a bit of life back then experienced by these pioneers, as told by their descendants. SeedPod is hosted by Arshia, Alicia, Amy, Jack, and Christian. Editing and piano noodling were performed by Christian on this episode. If you like SeedPod, you can support us in a number of ways. If you are a local, we would love to hear your stories about the place. Regardless of where you reside, you can help us financially through our Patreon site, which is https colon slash slash patreon.com slash seedpod. New episodes are scheduled for the third Wednesday of the month. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.